0: Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 97, Rebellion. Now that we know the lay of the land, it's time for action, and quite some action it will be. The Vents, the pagan Slavic people living east of the Elbe, who found themselves ever more squeezed by their now Christian neighbours, wake up one morning to find their oppressors fatally weakened. Events 2,000 kilometres south of Brandenburg, create the once-in-a-century opportunity to throw off the yoke of the Saxons. The newly built churches go up in flames and their tormentors flee back across the Elbe. Any plans for retaliations are thwarted by a succession crisis. This loss of control will have a major impact not only on German history, but will reset the relationship with Poland and Bohemia as well. In the year 1000, the Emperor Otto III will manifest that new relationship when he visits one of Poland's most remarkable monarchs, Boleslav the Brave in Gniezno. Let's find out. But before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Matthias Jott, Bruno B., Jean O., and Naomi K., who've already signed up. Last week, we got a rundown of the main neighbors of northern Germany, the Bohemians, the Poles, and the Danes. All of these are now Christian, and all of them are at least formally vassals of the Emperor Otto the Great. Not all of them are happy about that, though. The Danes took the opportunity to rebel, when Emperor Otto the Great died in 973. Their king, Harold Bluetooth, felt safe behind the Dänewirk. The Dänewirk is a 30-kilometer-long earthen wall that goes from the old Danish port of Hebedee, near modern-day Schleswig, to the marshlands of the Träne River, effectively blocking access to the Jutland Peninsula. This structure has been built and rebuilt several times over and in slightly different locations since about the year 650. The point of it was to defend Denmark against any retaliatory attacks their raids along the coast would trigger. Or even more importantly, against the Saxon invasion during times when many of the Danish fighters were out in England or France. And it worked well. Even Charlemagne did not press on beyond the Danewerk after his conquest of Saxony. Most of the 9th and early 10th century, the Danes did not see much threat from their immediate south. That changed when Henry the Fowler upgraded the military of East Francia. He and Otto the Great had entered Denmark several times and encouraged, slash forced, the adoption of Christianity. The Danish king Harald Bluetooth, famous not just for his lax attitude towards dental hygiene, wanted to break out of this stranglehold so he spent much fine gold on reinforcing the defences in the years leading up to 973, waiting for his chance. When Otto the Great died in 973, he believed the moment had come. Transition of power from one monarch to the next is always a fraught affair in the early Middle Ages, and Otto II's ascent to the throne was no exception. Otto's cousin, Henry, aptly named the Quarrelsome, Duke of Bavaria, laid claim to the throne. His branch of the family had for a long time believed that they had been cheated out of the succession after Henry the Fowler. Civil war was in the air. And the King of Denmark wasn't the only one who thought this was the time to shake off the imperial yoke. They are the sons of a former Duke of Lothringia, who plotted to get back what was once theirs. And the Dukes of Poland and Bohemia openly supported Henry's claim to replace Otto II. Harald Bluetooth did not officially take part in the rebellion or link up with Henry the Quarrelsome. Still, he musters his army and moves south, burning and pillaging as he went. Along for the journey came Jarl Harkon, the ruler of Norway, who had become Harold Bluetooth's vassal. Now, despite having his hands full with his cousin, the Bohemians, the Poles and the Lothringians, Otto II was able to field an army that pushed the Danish and Norwegian attackers back behind the Daneverk, but attempts to break the mighty defences were rebuffed. According to the Danish sources, it was the betrayal of Jarl Hakon, who left in the midst of the fighting that turned the fortune of war. The Danewerk was broken again, and Otto II stood inside the now defenseless kingdom. That brought not only an end to Harald Bluetooth's rebellion, it also brought Schleswig into the empire. And just to round off the story of the succession, Otto II was able to put down his cousin's rebellion and force the Dukes of Bohemia and Poland to submit to him again in 978. So all is back to where we were when Otto the Great had died. Well, yes and no. Otto II was no Otto the Great. Despite his initial success, he found himself humiliated in 980 when King Lothair of West Frankia suddenly attacked Aachen, where the Imperial family had just sat down for dinner. Otto II and his glamorous wife, the empress Teofanu, escaped by a hair's breadth. These and other misadventures began to undermine the credibility of the regime. The biggest blow came in 982, when Otto had taken the largest army ever put up by the Ottonians to conquer southern Italy. At the Battle of Capo Colonna or Battle of Stilo, as some called it, the imperial forces were practically wiped out. They counted 4,000 fallen men amongst them, the Duke of Benevento, the Bishop Henry of Augsburg, the Markgraf Gunther of Merseburg, the Abbot of Fulda and a further nineteen counts. That cut deep into the military capabilities of the still young empire. The defeat and the loss of the imperial army was the moment so many had waited for, and none more so than the Wends. The rebellion began on July 29, 983, with the murder of the garrison and the destruction of the cathedral of Havelberg in the northern march. According to the chronicler Helmut von Bozar, the trigger for that rebellion was the unwarranted mistreatment of the Slavs, in particular the Abodritis. The Abodritis are a federation of several Slavic tribes who live in the March of the Bilongs across Holstein and Mecklenburg. They had become Christian after the battle at the Raxa River, where the leader of the Abodrites had his head put on a spike and 700 of his soldiers were executed. This convinced the brother of the now headless prince of the Abodrites to become Christian. How sincere that was, I leave to you to judge. But his son Mistivoi thought he would give that Christianity thing a real go. He saw how the Poles and Bohemians had been integrated into the political system of Christian Europe and risen in stature and power after taking the plunge. So, not only did he convert and regularly pay the oppressive tributes, but, according to the chronicler, he also participated in imperial campaigns in Italy. To further enhance his status, he had asked the Duke Bernard Billung for the hand of his daughter in marriage. As the nuptials approached, the Duke became evasive. Finally, Dietrich von Halvensleben, the markrath of the nearby northern marches, shouted out at one of the feasts that, The daughter of a Duke should not be given to a dog. Now, Mstivoy was not only deeply offended, but he also realized that his reconciliatory approach had failed. He meets up with the leaders of other Slavic tribes, and they decide to strike. First, as I said before, they attack Havelberg, and three days later, the Cathedral of Brandenburg goes up in flames. The graves of the previous bishops were opened, and their bones scattered. The church treasure stolen, and they brutally spilled the blood of many. But the biggest point of consternation for Tietmar and the Saxons was that all the population, even those who had converted, supported the uprising. Now Mistivoy had less garrisons to burn in his own lands and so crossed the Elbe and attacked the core of the Saxon duchy. His troops burn Hamburg to the ground, kill the priests and take many home as prisoners. They even progressed as far as Magdeburg, though the Markgraf Dietrich the same who had caused so much anger was able to put them to flight. What happens next is hard to piece together from the sources. It seems the leaders of the border counties and the bishops finally gather troops to stop the flood of raging pagans. Battle is joined near modern-day Stendal, and the Slavs are allegedly beaten comprehensively. Now I say allegedly because after the battle the Saxon troops moved back behind the Elbe River and effectively abandoned the northern Slavic lands to the people who continued in their pagan beliefs. In my book, that would mean the Slavs had won. Now once the immediate catastrophe was averted, the Saxons called for their mighty emperor to come up and help sorting things out. Otto II had survived the carnage at the Battle of Capocolono by swimming out to a Byzantine merchant ship. But that's another story, so you can find that in episode 10. What is relevant for our story is that in the autumn of 983 he held an assembly in Verona, where the Saxon leaders attended. How much help they found there is a bit unclear, since the key decisions taken there had nothing to do with Saxony. One of the decisions was to elect the three-year-old son of Otto II as king and successor to his father. Otto III travelled north to Aachen for his coronation as king. This took place at Christmas 983. If you go to Aachen Cathedral today, you can still see the railings that had been put up in front of Charlemagne's throne to stop the imperial toddler from falling to his death. Otto III did escape death on that day. But his father wasn't so lucky. He had died in Rome in mid-December. Likely from exhaustion, frustration and the generally unhealthy conditions. Messengers with the bad news knocked on the doors of the Cathedral of Aachen just as the coronation ceremonies for Otto III came to its conclusion. Like the death of Otto the Great, the death of Otto II triggered a wave of rebellions. Only worse this time. The Slavs, as we heard, are already in full-on riot mode. The next to smell the coffee was King Harald Bluetooth up there in Denmark. He settled up again retook the Dänewerk and burned the additional castles Otto II had built for its defence. Schleswig was lost. This time, the new emperor will not come up to Jütland for a very long time. The rebellious duke Henry the Quarrelsome of Bavaria, the one we've heard about earlier, had languished in jail for the last years and was now released as soon as the news of Otto II's death had arrived. He's in Utrecht, just two days' ride from Aachen, he gallops down and seizes the royal child. As the closest male relative, he claims guardianship and the regency. For many of the nobles, Henry, despite his somewhat uncouth way of assuming control, might look like a sensible solution. As the borders are on fire, who would want to put their faith into the hands of a child? The Duke of Bavaria was an experienced war leader and may well be the right person to protect the realm. But not everyone is on board with Henry. The child's mother, the Empress theophanu and its grandmother, the Empress Adelheid, were working together with the future Pope Sylvester II to build up opposition against Henry's plans. Many of the great nobles and bishops are concerned about the life expectancy of little Otto, who was, after all, their anointed king. An accidental fall down the stairs or a sudden illness is all that separates the quarrelsome from the throne. To make sure he can suppress any opposition, Henry gathers allies to his cause. One is the king of West Francia, Lothair, who, like any French king before him and any French king after him, wants Lothringia back. So Henry promises him the whole duchy in exchange for support. And two others he gathers to his side. Again the Duke of Bohemia, Boleslaus II, and the Duke of Poland, Mieszko I. We do not know what he promised them, but it's likely a material easing of their duties as vassals to the royal house. The key to his success lay in Saxony. Saxony is where the risk of invasion is highest and hence the willingness to accept Henry as ruler should be strongest. It is also the largest duchy and the home of the imperial family. When Henry popped up in Saxony in February 984, support was initially quite strong. He had by now dropped the pretext of guardianship and regency and was openly seeking the throne, either for himself or together with little Otto. But during the subsequent few months his followership began to crumble. In part that may be due to his personal behaviour. In a famous scene he refused to show mercy to two Saxon counts who had approached him barefoot and begged his pardon. That was seen as not very kingly. But what must have really gone down the wrong way was that Henry invited not just the dukes of Poland and Bohemia to his election assembly in Magdeburg, but also Mistyboy, the deeply offended leader of the Abodrites, who had only months earlier burned and pillaged Hamburg and brought his army before the walls of Magdeburg. To top it off, Duke the II of Bohemia had taken possession of the Mark of Meissen whilst he was en route down to this assembly. Whether it was their presence, the behavior of Henry or the oath that had sworn to little Otto III, a number of Saxon magnates, namely the Duke Bernhard of Saxony himself, the son of Hermann Billung, the Markgrafs Dietrich of the Northern Marches, Bio and Esico of Merseburg, and Count Eckart, the future Markgraf of Meissen, as well as Bernhard, future Bishop of Hildesheim, left the assembly and swore to oppose Henry's claim to kingship. Henry tried to bring them to submit through the display of military might, but failed to intimidate them. That was the major, maybe fatal, blow to his claim. He could not deploy his military power against these men because that would have kicked off a civil war that the foreign foes would have exploited, which in turn would have undermined the underlying logic of his candidature. Henry then wanders off to find support in Bavaria and Franconia, but the momentum is lost. There were another complex sets of back and forth, but in the end Henry gives in and Teofano becomes regent. We went through that in some detail in episode 11, which is, by the way, super interesting. What is important here is that the Saxons had made clear that they are the heart of the Ottonian system of government and that they have the final say who becomes king. Or at least, that is what they believed. Resolving the succession crisis did not mean that the threats on the border were resolved, though. What follows is a bit repetitive and goes roughly as follows. Every year the Saxons raid into the lands of the Wends, specifically into the March of the Billungs and into the Northern March. They burn and pillage and then they go home. The following year they do the same, and the year after again the same thing. They often organize these campaigns in collaboration with the Duke of Poland, Miesko, who would come in from the east. As you may see on the map, both of these marches were trapped between Poland and Saxony. In 986, Little Otto comes along for one of these campaigns and allegedly captured Brandenburg, but a year later it is back in the hands of the locals. Either before or during this period, several of the smaller Wendish tribes joined together to the Liuzzi or Lutizzi federation. They inhabited the northern marches as well as eastern part of the March of the Billungs. They often ally with misty-voiced Abodrites, who live in Holstein and Mecklenburg, and the Hevelas, based around Havelberg. The Abodritis, Liutzi, and Hevelers are by now largely reverted to their pagan religion. The most important religious center was called Retra, Riedegost, or for the fans of Tolkien, Radegost. We know that Retra was located within the territory of the Ridari, one of the federated members of the Liozzi, we still have not found its exact locations or any remnants of it. Now, the above applies only to the March of the Billungs and the Northern Marches, modern day Mecklenburg, Vorpommern, and Brandenburg. In the two marches further south, Lusatia and Meissen, the situation was materially different. Yes, there were serious rebellions as well, but thanks to the focused approach of Markgraf Gero and his successors, these marches had been much deeper penetrated by Saxon forces. There were multiple strong fortifications from where the occupiers could keep the Slavic population under control. Hence, down south, the Margraves could hold firm. The bishopric state and the Slavic inhabitants were made to maintain the Christian religion. Things were so stable that Margraf Hodor of Lusatia seems to have had enough spare capacity to attack the from the south. In Meissen, there is a new Margraf, Eckhard I, who took over in 985. Eckard was one of the most ambitious and proactive military leaders during this period. He had to fight on two fronts. On one side, he had to get the locals back into submission, but on the other side, he had to throw out the Bohemians who had captured Meissen during the uprising of Henry the Quarrelsome. Part of his success was down to a falling out between Duke Mieszko of Poland and Duke Boleslas II of Bohemia. Until now, the two dukes seemed to have worked hand in glove in their attempts to get out from under imperial control. But once Otto III and his regency was established and the crisis resolved, they went at each other's throat. This was mainly down to Boleslav's business model, that was based on regular raids into enemy territory, which included Silesia, where Poland pursued a similar policy. The conflict got so heated that Christian Boleslav was happy to go as far as entering into an alliance with the rebellious pagan Liozzi, as long as that kept Miesco busy. For the Saxons, this struggle had the advantage that the Bohemians did not have enough resources to hold on to the mark of Meissen. So if you look at it from a height of 10,000 feet, the political framework had markedly shifted. The mark of the Billungs and the Northern Marches are no longer under direct Saxon control. The local tribes have lined up in two more powerful federations, the Abodrites and the Liozzi. As for the two southern marches, they are still held, but are under risk of attacks from the Bohemians, possibly in alliance with the Liuzzi. And on top of that, the mainly Slavic population is not best disposed towards their Saxon overlords. That brings the local magnates into ever closer alliance with the Duke Miesko of Poland. The Poles can provide coordinated attacks into the land of the Vents, and at the same time hold the Bohemians in check. These alliances are getting underpinned by marriages. Duke Meskur I marries Oda von Haldensleben, the daughter of Markgraf Dietrich of the Northern March. In turn, the Polish duke's daughter marries Gunselin, the brother of Markgraf Eckhard of Meissen. There were many more of these personal and political links that will only grow stronger from here forward. At the same time, the links between the Saxons and the Poles tighten, the link between the Empire and the duchy of Poland become looser. In a clever move, Mieszko gave the whole of Poland to the Pope in 991 or 992. By doing that, Mieszko weakens the religious oversight of the Archbishopric of Magdeburg, which is an important step in the disassociation between Poland and the Empire. All these developments culminate in the famous journey Otto III undertakes to Gniezno in the year 1000. The background to the journey is St. Adalbert of Prague, or Wojtek in Czech. St. Adalbert was a member of an important Bohemian family and became Bishop of Prague at a young age. Despite his noble birth and elevated position, Adalbert rejected all forms of comfort and luxury. Instead, he pursued an ascetic life of prayer. And unlikely as that sound, that is what got him into hot water. He had to leave his seat as Bishop of Prague because The local magnates did not take kindly to his excessive piety, or more precisely his idea that the wealth of the church should serve the poor. It also did not help that Adalbert's powerful family was opposing Duke Boleslas of Bohemia. Things had come to a head when Adalbert tried to stop the mob from lynching a woman accused of adultery by sheltering her in his church. Adalbert fled to Rome and did what he really wanted to do which is commit himself to prayer and extreme forms of ascetic exercises as a monk. But that was not to be. He was dragged in front of a church synod because, as a bishop, he was not allowed to abandon his flock for the delights of regular prayer, fasting and self-flagellation. Under canon law, the link between a bishop and his diocese was an eternal bond like marriage that could not be broken. And that went both ways, i.e., As long as Adalbert was alive, no new bishop of Prague could be appointed. And that is why Adalbert's superior, the Archbishop Williges of Mainz insisted on Adalbert going back to Prague. Williges did not care much that Adalbert would almost certainly be killed upon arrival, since all the other members of his family had been massacred by the duke. Quite frankly, that was all for the better as far as Williges was concerned, since he could then appoint a new, more reliable bishop. Otto III met Adalbert at the synod and almost immediately formed a close bond with the holy bishop. Through his intervention, Adalbert's condemnation was commuted into a missionary assignment with the Prutzi. These are a pagan tribe that lives northeast of Poland and has so far been untouched by Christianity. As it turns out, Adalbert's chances of survival had not improved significantly in the new challenge. The Prutsi aren't Slavic but Baltic people who spoke Old Prussian, vaguely linked to Lithuanian and Latvian. They also did not like foreigners very much. And what they liked even less, apparently, was books. So when Arabat got to his first village in Prussia and started preaching and reading from the Bible, presumably in Latin, the local chieftain hit him over the head with an oar, since he thought he was calling down demons. Things did not improve from here and a few weeks later a local mob, led by a pagan priest, attacked Adalbert and his small group of followers whilst they were lying on the grass having a snack. His head was cut off and put on a pole, with a small p. He would become one of the most celebrated Polish rulers. Boleslav had welcomed Adalbert and had provided him with a military escort to the border. But not any further. Boleslav the Brave of Poland is terribly embarrassed now about the death of the emperor's friend and mentor. So he promptly ransoms the body of Adalbert as well as his surviving brother from the Prutsi. He brings the body of Adalbert to Gnesno, Gnesen in German, where he is buried in the main church. When Otto hears about the death of his spiritual guide, he is profoundly shaken and blames himself for having encouraged him to go to Prussia in the first place. And so he develops the idea of wanting to go to Gniezno, and pray at the shrine of the now Saint Adalbert. But this is not only a spiritual journey. At least on the side of Boleslav the Brave, this is an eminently political event. And it should also be on the side of Otto III. The relationship between Poland and the Empire needs to be put on a new footing. The previous model of the Duke of Poland as a vassal in the same way as the Duke of Swabia was a vassal no longer worked. On the other hand, letting Poland wander off into the sunset as an independent state was also not conceivable. So what follows is likely a misunderstanding on both sides. Otto III arrives in Poland in the spring of the year 1000 and is welcomed by Boleslav the Brave, Duke of Poland. Boleslav pushes the boat out big time for his important visitor. He has his soldiers and nobles arranged in long columns in a field like an enormous choir. His subjects were told to put on all the bling they could find. Cloth embroidered with precious metal, fur and shiny armor. This event is basically the Polish equivalent of the field of cloth of gold. But it's much more than that. According to Polish chronicles, Otto III found what he saw far exceeds the rumors he had heard of Boleslav's wealth and power. And then, upon consultation with his great men, Otto the Third declared that such an eminent man should not be called merely a count or duke, but should be elevated to the royal title. Then, taking the imperial diadem from his head, Otto placed it on Bolislav's head in a of friendship. And then he gives Bolislav a replica of the Holy Lance with a small shard of the nail of the cross in it. Now, the German chronicles are not completely in line with this. They do record a splendid reception by Boleslav, a bond of friendship and an elevation of Boleslav to become a friend and ally of the Roman people. But crucially, they do not record a coronation or any other form of elevation to kingship. The question whether the ruler of Poland has a royal title and what exactly his relationship to the empire is will dominate the next century of imperial-Polish relationship. But... Weird as that may sound, the coronation, or not coronation, wasn't the main event. After the great gathering, Otto and Boleslav proceed to Gnezno, the place where St. Adalbert is buried. When he sees the city from afar, Otto gets off his horse, takes off his shoes and his imperial clothes and humbly walks into the town barefoot. At the church, he is received by the bishop of Poznan, who guides him in. The emperor kneels down in front of the sarcophagus of his friend and mentor, weeps profusely and prays for God's grace through the intercession of the martyr. Upon rising, Otto declares the elevation of the Church of Gnesno to an archbishopric. You may remember that Duke Miescu had given the whole of Poland to the Pope as a donation. That had already weakened the link between the archbishopric of Magdeburg, which at least to this point was technically still in charge of Polish bishops. But by creating the archbishopric of Gniezno. Otto III removed Poland from the control of the Archbishopric of Magdeburg for good. The only level of church hierarchy above the Archbishop of Gnezno was now the Pope. The brother of Adalbert, who had been ransomed by is made the first Archbishop of Gnezno and thereby the first primate of the Polish church. There we are in our story. The two northern marches are lost to a degree. Poland is rowing away fast from imperial control. What we have not talked about are our friends the Danes. Quite a lot going on there too. That we will talk about next week. The other thing we will talk about next week is what happened after Otto III died. His successor is none other than the son of Henry the Qualsam and he, the Emperor Henry II, will take a very different approach to its eastern border and approach that will drive a first wedge between the Saxons and their emperor. I hope you will join us again. Before I go, let me thank all of you supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you that this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. And if Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes.